This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I'm Brandon Thurston, broadcasting on demand from Buffalo, New York, where today is Sunday, March 14th, 2021. Yes, it's Pi Day here on the Wrestling Podcast of Numbers. This week, we'll talk about ratings. We'll talk about pay-per-view buys. We'll talk about explosions. WrestleMania at Raymond James Stadium. Looks like they're going to try to pack them in. The NHL has made a deal with ESPN. What does that mean for the future of wrestling TV rights fees? WWE's proxy statement still has not come out. Maybe next week. I've got stuff written at WrestleNomics.com. I've got a YouTube video. YouTube. This is the beginning of my midlife crisis, I think. I'm a YouTuber now. First it was Twitch, now this. All that. Coming up in the hour. But first... AEW Dynamite, coming off of its, what looks to be, we'll talk about it later, its most in-demand pay-per-view yet, but AEW Dynamite on the Wednesday following the Revolution pay-per-view, coming in with a disappointing number, although the program did rank number four on the night in P18-49, to uh, but 743,000 viewers for the post-pay-per-view event, usually Dynamite episodes following a pay-per-view mean a moderate increase Versus the median of the last four episodes. Not this time. Viewership was slightly down by that comparison on this occasion. 743,000 viewers, 441,000 of those viewers between the ages of the coveted 18-49 bracket. Opposing AEW Dynamite on Wednesday night. WWE NXT on the USA Network with a number of title matches in the two-hour program. 691,000 viewers, the fewest since February 10th. Uh, Dynamite's viewership also was the fewest since February 10th. NXT ranked number 25 in the key demo of 18 to 49. That's the equivalent of about 233,000 viewers. Raw and SmackDown both had pretty normal ratings compared to what they've been doing lately. Fast Nationals for SmackDown on this Friday. Looks like SmackDown is a little bit down. But we'll see what happens when the finals are reported on Monday. Monday Night Raw swept the top three spots in 18-49 on Monday on cable once again. Impact Wrestling on Access ranked 117th. That's roughly in the range of what they've been doing. Maybe that's a little bit uh, on the high end. Nonetheless, total viewership of 144,000 viewers was down 11% compared to what they do normally. Raw and SmackDown, by the way, uh, exceed these other three programs by a wide, wide margin. Last week, Friday, SmackDown doing 2.25 million viewers, almost 2.3 million viewers. Raw doing 1.9 million viewers. And I believe it was some jabroni analyst who told you, the listener, earlier in this year or at the end of last year, to watch what happens in not just the 18-49 to 49 demo, but the 18-34 to 34 demo, the younger adult demo. Watch what happens. Compare that demo, the trends over time of Dynamite in that demo to Raw in that demo. And what's been happening since then, in the last few months, Raw is doubling AEW Dynamite in that demo, more or less so far in the first three months of 2021. It was getting pretty close there at the end of 2020. Raw's lead over AEW in 18-34 to was down to as little as 32%, 24%. You know, just a 32% lead in August and September, a 24% in December when AEW did some really strong uh, programs with high viewership. Since then, Raw has taken the lead or increased its lead, I should say, doubling, more than doubling AEW in January, a lead of 86% in February, a lead of 120% in March at this point. So while through the pandemic, we were trending toward a smaller and smaller margin for Raw over Dynamite. That trend has not continued yet so far in 2021. On the other hand, yes, AEW's lead over NXT in every demo, except for good old P50+. 
uh, has been quite decisive. In the all TV is down crisis category, we are now looking at the trailing 13 weeks of each program, taking the median of those 13 weeks. Why 13 weeks? That's about one quarter of a year. That's arbitrary, but it seems like a, a good, I don't know, section of time to grab the last 13 weeks. Take the median out of those 13. Compare the median that you get from that to the same 13 weeks of the year prior. So it's important to compare one time of the year to the same time of the prior year because of seasonal effects. But anyway, TV overall, we're going to use, again, the top 50 non-news cable programs. Total viewership is down 21%. Everybody else is doing a little bit better right now. Raw comes the closest to to that benchmark, down 19%. And uh, the next worst by that comparison, Impact Wrestling down 16%, followed by AEW Dynamite down 12%, and then SmackDown down just 8%, and NXT down just 4%. So, so NXT appears to be the, uh, the, the most enduring on this occasion in this measurement. But what about, that was total audience, total audience only. What about 18 to 49, the key demo, the demo that sells the ads. Uh, top 50 non-news cable is down 29% in 18 to 49, median of the last 13 versus the median of, of the 13 weeks in the same year prior does that make sense? I hope everybody's following me here. Down 29%. If you're doing worse than 29%, you're in trouble. But nobody's doing worse than 29%. But what's the results here? Uh, who's the closest to doing that bad? NXT is the closest to doing that bad. Down 27%. Again, just two points away from the 29% of the top 50 non-news cable. Followed by NXT, down 25%. WWE Raw, down 17%. WWE. WWE SmackDown, and then a big gap before we get to AEW Dynamite down just 7% in the 18-49 comparison. And Impact Wrestling, uh, we've got some weak precision to use here because I'm using a P18-49 demographic rating, which is like 0.04 in a lot of weeks for Impact, and then converting that to, to viewers. So I would call this an estimate in the case of uh, Impact Wrestling, really all these numbers, which are ultimately from Nielsen via Showbiz Daily, are estimates. But that notwithstanding, Impact Wrestling down 5%. Again, while the top 50 non-news cable is all the way down to 29%. So in terms of a crisis, uh, I don't see any of these programs doing terribly. I mean, it is, it is not good that NXT is down to that degree, I guess. But, but Raw is pretty close as well, and... And then Raw is uh, is dominating right now on Monday nights. I don't think there's much you can say that's that bad about Raw's TV viewership at this moment. SmackDown's viewership has been holding up pretty impressively as well. And then from there, let's get to it. lay in bed after the conclusion of AEW Revolution 2021. $50 poorer. Staring up at the ceiling and I concluded the obvious which I've been in denial about for many years. Pro wrestling is hopeless. The last modicum of faith I had in the creative redemption of this beloved art was finally extinguished on Sunday night. An interference-laden pay-per-view, highlighted by the unveiling of AEW's latest signing from the 45-plus crowd, overhyped and underdelivered by the company that promised to be sports-like, was capped off by one of the most embarrassing moments in pro wrestling history. U.S. Pro Wrestling will never be good again, if it ever was. Even after we defeat the novel coronavirus, there is a virus infecting pro wrestling. The business will die 
Not of this virus, no. There will be enough money to go around to keep it alive for a long time to come. This virus is neither deadly enough to kill the business outright, yet it is still innocuous enough to grant some hope. But the creative virus is everywhere, and there is no cure. And for AEW Revolution on March 7th, it looks to have been AEW's best-selling pay-per-view yet. Selling somewhere in the neighborhood of 125,000 buys that would exceed what I believe to be the record set with Double or Nothing in May 2020 last year with 105,000 buys. That that pay-per-view too in the COVID era, the first pay-per-view in fact of the COVID era for AEW. But this one exceeding that by roughly, maybe a little bit more than 20,000 pay-per-view buys. The entire event generated probably more than $5 million gross. Uh, A lot of that is going to be taken home by the various pay-per-view providers. But more than $5 million on pay-per-view alone, and then just under $100,000 between ticket sales and merchandise sales, according to the Observer Newsletter. There were 1,150 paid fans in attendance at Daly's Place in Jacksonville, Florida for the pay-per-view event. Of course, that event, main evented by the AEW heavyweight title match. Is it a heavyweight anyway? The AEW title match between champion Kenny Omega against John Moxley in a barbed wire time bomb, or maybe just barbed wire exploding death match. But over $5 million on pay-per-view gross, uh, the... Pay-per-view providers will take a little bit more than half of that. AEW probably ends up with a little over $2 million in net revenue. If you figure the event cost around or just under a million dollars to run, then this would be a a quite profitable show for All Elite Wrestling. Uh, You may be seeing some reports of a higher gross that I think is not taking into account the lower price point that the pay-per-view is sold at. Uh, in international markets, where it's uh, mostly sold at $20 or around $20 in non-U.S. and non-Canada markets, which as far as I know has always been the case. For the ticket sales, if we take an average ticket price of about $65, which is the median of the advertised ticket price range, if we take an average ticket price of $65, the high was um, $40, or sorry, the low was $40 and the high was $90. That would end up with a gate of around $75,000. If you figure merch per capita is about $15 per head, I was told it was a little bit higher than that. Uh, $18, let's say that's just over $20,000 in venue merchandise. That's a small fraction of of the pay-per-view revenue. But obviously, capacity is limited at this point. So those are the facts, as I know them, related to the Revolution pay-per-view. As far as why the time bomb explosion at the end of the pay-per-view was what it was, what was intended, uh, we'll go to some comments from Tony Khan in a moment, but basically what it looked like uh, the spot was supposed to emulate was the ending of a 1993 Atsushi Onita versus Terry Funk match in an exploding time bomb death match. Same rules, basically, where after Onita beat Terry Funk... The time bomb hadn't gone off yet and was about to go off. And as it did, Onita ran into the ring and covered and sort of took the hit or helped protect Terry Funk. And then they both rose from the ashes and walked out of the arena or the the stadium. This is at Kawasaki Stadium, of course. Walked out of the, walked away from the ring arm in arm, side by side. So I imagine something similar was intended uh, for the, the end scene with Eddie Kingston and John Moxley as they would reunite and become a tag team or something like that, uh, evident from the, the promos that followed on Dynamite on Wednesday. Nonetheless, as you probably know, the, the time bomb, which was probably meant to fully engulf the ring and smoke and be this huge explosion, which is what it, it would be in an Onita match in FMW, uh, was nothing of the sort. There were just a, some sparklers and a few uh, 
smaller explosions at ringside. So what was intended, Tony Khan did a more than 30-minute post-show conference call with media where I, I have to say he looked to be in an incredibly good mood, which I cannot say I would be in such a good mood if I was in his position, uh, where he gave uh, this comment, among others. And oh, by the way, uh, usually WrestleNomics is a family program, but if you're listening with your kids, there are some swear words in this uh, clip. Two questions. First, is there a way to turn around that explosion? Uh, I'm not saying this is how you do it, but maybe by explaining Kingston's friends yeah. are backstage. I think, no, we already have. We already, I mean, we'll, we're posting now what's going on with the explosion on social media. Have you seen, Justin, uh, the promo that uh, John did at the live event that uh, some of the live fans have posted, but then we're posting it now. It's uploading from like the TV copy. I don't know if you saw what John said after the event. I didn't. I haven't yet. Okay. Then, all right. So uh, to quote John, or at least paraphrase, if not word for word, Kenny Omega might be a bad son of a bitch, but he can't build an exploding ring worth of shit. Uh, Kenny, you know, the plans for this we saw in crayon and all through the match we saw, you know, it looked very cool and it's a very deadly, painful match. But at the end, I mean, I don't know what people really want. Unless you wanted us to actually explode the guys at the end, there's only so much you can do. So without actually uh, blowing the ring and both guys up, um, you know, I think the basic explanation is that, Kenny's ring set to explode his plan, you know, uh, as a heel uh, who built this thing with a hammer and nails, as we saw, that the final bomb just didn't go up. So there's Tony Khan almost making it sound as if the explosion that the fans saw at the end of the pay-per-view was the explosion that was intended, which is not my impression of uh, reality. And I know he's he's sewing in a lot of kayfabe there and giving you the storyline answer of what happened and what they're going to go with, but making comments at the end also, as you just heard, to the effect of, I don't know what you could have expected, we can't blow them up, and things of that nature. Uh, again, allowing one to read, and again, I don't think this is the case, that, that's, that, that what happened was what was intended. And I have listened to this entire... 30 plus minute uh, post-show conference call. And there's no further clarification about just what was intended for the end of the show. But it appears that there was supposed to be a much larger explosion that just did not go off as planned. So my hyperbolic uh, review of the show set to Mozart aside, what does the pay-per-view ending this way mean for AEW's business in light of the lack of explosion or the dud? Uh, Combine that with This was AEW's most successful pay-per-view yet. And I think a little bit too, combine that with the lack of explanation to people who spent up to $50 on this, uh, the lack of explanation beyond a storyline explanation. So in short, I think this is a very bad moment for AEW's brand and a bad moment for its goodwill relationship with fans. It is possible to rebuild from this, but it sort of couldn't come at a, at a worse time when you captivated people and got your biggest pay-per-view audience ever, everybody watching, who was watching legally anyway, paid money to see this, and it didn't deliver uh, in an embarrassing way. Uh, as many people say, the, the match, I think most people are uh, somewhat impressed, at least, by the performance of the match. The match was, at, at a minimum, fine, but that last moment at the end... I think sends a message that I'm not sure if AEW can always deliver what they promise. Maybe if you're also disappointed in Christian being revealed as the mystery new signing, that compounds that perception. And the disappointment uh, response, I think, is bared out in the Wednesday viewership performance of Dynamite, coming in uh, lower than Dynamite has been performing in recent weeks when other post-pay-per-view programs uh, usually meant an increase relative to the previous four weeks of AEW Dynamite. So a record on pay-per-view? Do people feel burnt? Are people going to come back uh, for Double or Nothing in May? Is AEW going to be able to compete with that record for Double or Nothing? Obviously, it will depend on a number of factors, but one of those factors will be just how the potential pay-per-view audience feels about 
the ending or the the show overall uh, revolution. But AEW has a couple months to try to get people to forget and to be captivated again in something else. In other news, we've got reports both from the Wrestling Observer Newsletter and from John Alba, a reporter from Central Florida who's broken a number of wrestling news stories lately, that WWE plans to have 45,000 fans each night at Raymond James Stadium in Tampa Bay, Florida, for WrestleMania, which is a two-day event. On Saturday and Sunday, April 10th and 11th, capacity of Raymond James Stadium with a full stage and a, and a typical non-COVID times WrestleMania event would be probably somewhere in well in excess of 60,000. 45,000 is reported to be the capacity that they're going to attempt uh, to fill. Tickets not yet on sale. Tickets go on sale Tuesday with less than a month to go before the day of the events. If 45,000 tickets go on sale for each day, that would be a total, this this is the math podcast, that would be a total of 90,000 tickets. Uh, Is this really going to happen? There's no confirmation yet from WWE that 45,000 each day is really what they intend to do. Uh, The Tampa Bay, I think it's the Tampa, is it Tampa Bay or Tampa? What's the deal here? Anyway, the Tampa Sports Authority uh, is the organization that oversees Raymond James Stadium. John Alba notes that he's reached out to the Tampa Sports Authority. I have also emailed the Tampa Sports Authority, and no one has gotten a response yet as to what the capacity at Raymond James Stadium will be for WrestleMania. Having a big crowd there uh, for WrestleMania would fit the uh, the MO of WWE to be the first to put such a large number of people in attendance and to get back in business, which is the tagline for this year's WrestleMania, back in business. That said, can this be done safely? What are the safety protocols going to be? There's no public statement uh, on those details specifically yet either. Is testing going to be required? Are masks going to be required? Uh, Are vaccinations going to be required? Other questions, uh, whatever the, the safety standards end up being, is there a demand sufficient to sell 90,000 tickets for WrestleMania on this short of notice and with immense travel restrictions, there'll be no international fans attending. You got to think consumers in general are hesitant still to attend large gatherings. Some are, some aren't, but regardless of how uh, captivated and excited people are about the WrestleMania event, some are going to have uh, hesitations about attending an event like this. Other fans who even do live in the United States, uh, may be in a more complicated situation if they live out of state and they have to go through inconvenient travel restrictions or they may have to quarantine when they return back to their home state. It's very complicated if you're uh, expecting to attract fans from outside of Florida. But I don't know. Do do I think that there's 90,000 tickets to be sold here? Obviously, many people will attend both days. But I I don't think, I would be surprised if this is a a genuine sellout um, I imagine we'll get some idea from WSICC filings or their key performance indicators, key performance indicator documents that they publish after the fact. We've we've always been able to get an idea within a certain range of what the paid attendance was for WrestleMania going I think, all the way back to 2008, I think we have that. And it helps that the, the Tampa Bay Sports Authority, Tampa Sports Authority, is overseeing this. Uh, they're a, a a public organization, a, a government organization. So there may be some FOIA requests that can be done here as well. And I think there's some interesting questions uh, going forward. What's the future of live events? And I'm not just talking about, yeah, maybe they won't run house shows, but um, what are venues and other authorities going to require eventually to be able to run events at full capacity? Uh, I've heard some speculation that, uh, you know, in, in major sports leagues that maybe, you know, fans will be required to show some sort of proof that they've been vaccinated or something like that, or that we may soon uh, live in a world where everyone has a health passport that contains certain information verifying that you've been vaccinated or, or something. And just, there's lots of other questions that I just, you know, I don't know the answer to. Can, uh, 
can uh, companies, wrestling companies or otherwise, uh, require their workers' talent to be vaccinated? In the hobby, it's not easy being a fan of ripping packs or repacks. We hype ourselves up thinking, ah, maybe I can pull a Ken Griffey Jr. rookie card. But with zero transparency on available cards and hit rates, it's all just a shot in the dark. Until now. Introducing Slab Packs from Arena Club. Com, the only repack that provides real value, a complete view of all possible cards, and clear hit rates for each one. Now, when I buy slab packs at Arena Club, it finally feels like I know what I'm getting. I was able to open an Arena Club slab pack, and, and I'll be honest, it was a lot better than what you normally do. Say you go to a card show, and there's a random innocuous brown bag of cards and yeah you can open it and look it's going to be junk you're you, you know what i mean like you know what you're probably going to get in those maybe you find that fun and sometimes i do sometimes i like just opening up cards and saying oh, hey look at some random cards or whatever but if you're really in this game to to find value and find particular cards it sucks to have to buy these mystery packs and it ends up being you know almost nothing you know nothing of value not with arena club you can display, again, of all available cards, hit rates, grading, so you know that when you're opening up the slab pack, you are going to get something valuable. You are getting something good. And Arena Club, in addition to having those great slab packs we just talked about, is also a marketplace for card collecting, buying, trading, selling, displaying, all that sort of stuff. But those Arena Club slab packs, man, they are revolutionizing the repack game with transparency. After your polls are revealed, they'll immediately be placed in your vault for safekeeping or trading and selling, and you can have them officially graded by Arena Club as well. So again, setting these things off, it's going to be officially graded by Arena Club. And the Arena Club grading process is accurate, fast, and transparent with full grade rationale provided and explanation of how your card was scored. So whether you're buying, selling, trading, or displaying, Arena Club is the card collecting platform that you have to check out. So right now, got a special offer here for Voices of Wrestling Network listeners. You can get 10% off of your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Again, that's arenaclub.com slash V-O-W-Net. Now, that's a crazy offer. That's 10% off a $400 slab pack. $40 off right there. 10% off your first purchase. No matter what that purchase is, 10% off. Off. Again, that's arena club.com slash VOW net. Arena club.com slash VOW net for 10% off your first purchase on Arena Club. And we thank them for sponsoring the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. Or otherwise incentivize them uh, to do so if, uh, you know, you, you don't have to go through contact tracing or you don't have to quarantine if you're vaccinated or something like that. Uh, I have started to do a survey, which has a very low uh, sample rate, but it is through a Facebook ad, so hopefully it's somewhat random. But uh, I've got a lot of responses here uh, where I've asked wrestling fans, and when I say a lot of responses, I've got 23, but um, what I'm saying is the majority of them are saying either they definitely will not get vaccinated, probably won't get vaccinated, or are undecided. The majority. This was a survey is a survey directed at wrestling fans. Uh, again, very low sample rate, so don't take that too seriously. But I, I wonder, are, are wrestling fans disproportionately averse to, uh, to getting a COVID-19 vaccine? And how does that affect the future of live events, the return of live events, and things of that nature? Again, it's a Facebook ad, so hopefully these respondents are somewhat random. Maybe is there something about the pool of people that were uh, receiving this ad or the kinds of people who are willing to click on a ad that has a survey in it? Maybe there's something about that that tends to make one skew towards being skeptical of a vaccine. I don't know. So but going forward, maybe I'll put some more money into the ad and we'll get some more responses. That, so this is actually something that's a little bit more reliable. These are all U.S. responses, by the way. In other news, there's an article on the Patreon, patreon.com slash WrestleNomics. Uh, when NBC Universal and WWE announced about a week ago that the WWE Network will be moving over to Peacock on March 18th, WWE Network and Peacock will simultaneously carry WWE Network content from March 18th to April 4th. 
but beginning April 4th, Peacock, this is only in the U.S., by the way. If you're international, you're not in the U.S., this doesn't apply to you. 18th to April 4th, content will be on both the WWE Network and Peacock. Beginning April 4th, Peacock will be the only place to get WWE Network content in the U.S. Again, this doesn't affect you if you're outside of the U.S., but for the 70% or so of WWE Network subscribers in general who are in the U.S., this does affect you. After April 4th, your W Network will probably no longer work, and the only way to get it to work is through Peacock. I feel like I'm advertising here, which you can subscribe to for $4.99. It's, it's at a lower rate than your $9.99 subscription. The, that is with ads, though. The ad-free subscription is $9.99. I've heard there's a, a $2.50 trial or something out there as well. But anyway, uh, other important news there, though, is that not all of the current W Network content will be on Peacock immediately. Uh, the press release that W and NBC Universal put out said that it, it will take up to SummerSlam, or the, the language to be specific, is by SummerSlam. The entire library will be there by SummerSlam. Uh, this, however, led to uh, some, some panic among hardcore wrestling fans worried that, well, maybe the library content, the older archives, the territory stuff, the indie stuff, the, the stuff that is less watched in all likelihood, uh, will that actually get moved over to such a mainstream service as NBC Universal's Peacock? Or will they just forget about that and you know put the major pay-per-views on there from w- WCW to ECW, put the Raw and SmackDown archives on there and just forget about the rest? Um, a lot of concern about that. Uh, particularly in the, in the Voices of Wrestling Slack. So I emailed uh, Rick Cordell, who's the Executive Vice President and Chief Revenue Officer for Peacock TV. Uh, I believe he's also the person who negotiated the deal with Nick Khan of WWE to uh, sell the rights to the content to NBC Universal. Uh, I asked him, and there was also some concern about maybe cycling the content, you know, how Netflix sort of you know, puts a certain amount of stuff out there for a certain amount of time, then it goes away again. I think that really has to do with rights deals rather than voluntarily cycling things, but... There was some speculation and concern as well that maybe not all of the content would be out there at once permanently and that maybe some of it would get cycled in and out. So I was asking about the cycling aspect of the content and I was asking about the library, including uh, things like AWA, Jim Crockett Promotions, Mid-South, World Class. Is that stuff going to make it over to Peacock? Is there going to be cycling? Uh, Rick Cordella commented, quote, we're going to put it all on Peacock. No cycling. It just takes time to re-encode all the hours. It's labor-intensive with the metadata, imagery, closed captioning, etc. Uh, the team has it as a top priority, end quote. So according to Rick Cordella, that will all, all happen. It may take until SummerSlam, which is in August, for it to happen. But I, I, it sounds like it's all going to go over. Unfortunately, though, it will be a few months before it is all over there. And by the way, it is clear, I don't know if I've said this as definitively in the past, but you will have to sign up manually for Peacock. There will be no automatic migration of W Network user accounts over to becoming Peacock user accounts. I believe your your W Network user account will simply be canceled, I guess. That would be my guess. And uh, if you want to resume access to W Network content after April 4th, you will have to manually sign up for Peacock. You can also watch Murder, She Wrote, though, on Peacock. According to the Sports Business Journal, the NHL has made a deal with ESPN for its A package. Looks like NHL is going to split the rights to its games between ESPN and another partner, maybe its current partner, NBC Universal. we'll see. But at least some of those rights going to ESPN in a seven-year, $2.8 billion deal, which according to John O'Rand of the Sports Business Journal, quote, sheds a light on how the future of media deals will be structured, with streaming services getting even more play than linear TV, John O'Rand says. Part of the deal includes 75 exclusive games on ESPN+, Plus, that's a streaming service, and Hulu, another streaming service. That's right, live sports, exclusively on streaming services. We have arrived. Uh, these, are, these are not Fang streaming services. ESPN is owned by Disney. 
Hulu is owned partly by Disney and NBCU. Four of the next seven Stanley Cup uh, finals will be on ABC, which Disney owns. ABC and ESPN will share a 25-game regular season package. But again, $2.8 billion over seven years. That comes out to about $400 million a year for what looks to be just over 100 games a year. About 100 games a year for $400 million a year. Put that in some wrestling context. Raw is the biggest of the wrestling sports rights with uh, $265 million per year on an average annual basis for uh, putting Raw on the USA Network with NBC Universal. But this looks to be just half of what the, the new, new deals are going to be for uh, the NHL which has another package of, of games to deal, perhaps to NBC Universal, uh, maybe even Fox, who knows. And oh, this, this is important to the, the NHL TV streaming service, which is basically a direct-to-consumer streaming service, I think. Uh, that moves to go within ESPN+. Plus. It will not be a separate deal anymore. Sounds something like the WWE Network being folded into Peacock. I wonder if there'll be automatic migration or not. Who knows? But maybe we are beginning to see, you know, the early stages of some of these things being rebundled. And who knows how it will all play out in the end. But we've got a lot of direct-to-consumer services where the leagues, organizations like the NHL or WWE, they went direct-to-consumer at first. And it looks like, well, maybe it's it's more uh, favorable for them to bundle up with larger media companies like ESPN Plus, in the case of the NHL, or like NBC Universal with its Peacock service, in the case of WWE. Well, I've looked around a bit, and I don't know what uh, this $400 million per year from ESPN means compared to what the NHL's current deal is. Hmm, actually, I just looked it up. The current deal between NBCU and the NHL was $1.9 billion over 10 years. So that would be an average annual value of $190 million. So this ESPN deal alone, the NHL's new ESPN deal alone doubles uh, what the NHL was, is getting from NBCU. Now, that was a very long-range deal that began in 2011. So maybe the NHL gets some sort of increase from NBCU as well and ends up, you know, maybe tripling or who knows, even quadrupling its rights uh, for its games. Why is this important? Why does this matter to a, a wrestling podcast? Uh, because, again, we are coming up on the time in 2022 and 2023 when WWE and in all likelihood AEW will be renegotiating its TV rights deals. WWE's big TV deals come to an end in the fall of 2024, and those deals uh, are expected to be renegotiated some year and a half before that term ends. Uh, AEW has a four-year deal four years, it's three years with a, with a one-year option. If the option is picked up by Warner Media, then that would make that deal expire in December 2024, which would line the negotiation timeline up pretty closely with WWE's negotiating timeline. And again, why does this matter? Well, we're taking account of what the sports rights media market looks like. Is the bubble going to burst? It hasn't yet, and I, I, I'm skeptical that it ever will. Uh, as long as there is a lot of demand to watch live sports games and live wrestling, and as long as you know, we look at uh, you look at things like Raw. Even even though you can, I, I can make a tremendous, tremendously sad line graph uh, and, and get a lot of uh, retweets and likes about it, uh, charting the entire history of Raw and how ratings have declined tremendously. Uh, nonetheless, if you look at just to take an example, the last few weeks of Raw. Uh, Look at Showbiz Daily on those those Monday cable pages, and occupying the t number one, number two, and number three slots are the you know first, second, and third hour of Raw, and SmackDown is is doing pretty well. Also, do you remember, by the way, when SmackDown's ratings were were doing so bad that there were some commentators in the world of wrestling who were suggesting that maybe SmackDown would be kicked back to FS1? Uh, that that's clearly not going to happen. Um, uh, it, it just looks to me that the, the sports rights market is strong, and what matters the most is 
what your viewership is compared to uh, the wider selection of, of, of content that's out there. And again, I think the value for raw is, is the, the threshold to whether it's going to become more or less valuable is the threshold between is, is raw ranking regularly in the top five as it is now, or does it start to fall below that? It has never in the time that I've been following this over the last five years or so, it has never been out of that top five on a median basis or on an average basis. Yes, there are exceptional nights where there's a ton of news coverage or something like that where it gets bumped down, but normally it's it's in the top five. And you could say, you know, to a, to a lesser extent, something similar about AEW on Wednesday nights, it's in, lately, you know, the disappointing viewership this week for sure, but the ranking of AEW Dynamite has uh, been in the top five on, on some weeks. And I think that supports an argument for a big increase for AEW Dynamite when its deal comes up, if uh, all conditions that, that are what they are right now remain the same. Uh, NXT, though, NXT expiring in the fall of this year. Uh, NXT ranking number 25 this week, uh, sometimes falling out of the top 50 in many weeks. What does that mean for its negotiations in the fall? We will see. Probably not huge money for NXT. What is NXT getting right now? I don't know. Somewhere in the wide range between $20 million and $50 million a year, I would guess. Two-year deal is, is coming to an end for NXT. Maybe it gets a, a mild raise. We'll see, or maybe it'll just happen and we won't get any detail about it. That's, that's very possible. We'll see. I have a new article at WrestleLionics.com, the final evaluation of the WWE Network. Um, I think I have, yes, we, we did a podcast about this a couple weeks ago. Um, so I'm not going to go into all this detail about it. And it's there's so much detail and so many numbers in it that it's really better to read it than it will be to listen to it in a podcast. But the long and short of it is, um, in this hypothetical scenario where the W Network doesn't launch, any number of uh, scenarios could have been attempted. Any, any number of strategies could have been attempted as an alternative. But uh, it, it looks pretty clear that the network hasn't, at a minimum, the network has not been this transformative uh, business strategy as it was promised to be, as it was advertised to be, this this uh, service that would capture three to four million subscribers worldwide. It's fallen substantially short of that. Is WB more profitable because of the network? Maybe, um, but not by much. Maybe not even more profitable because of the network. The network in isolated years, yes, more profitable than pay-per-view, but there's a lot more to the story uh, because the network cannibalized uh, other businesses, including home entertainment, including digital media, that is, internet pay-per-view sales. The W Network, as I wrote about in a separate article, also uh, had an adverse effect on W's ability to negotiate favorable TV rights fees in 2014. Uh, did WB uh, offset that lack of uh, value captured in its big increase, 3.6x increase in 2018? Was it all a wash? Who knows? Um, but it, it's a very complicated and not overly positive story in terms of the financial picture. I think one of the key elements is that the network price point of nine ninety nine was just too low. Um, I think WWE conceives of itself as more entertainment than sports, and that maybe contributed to a a price point that was nearer to entertainment, scripted entertainment streaming services than sports streaming services, uh, you know, the, the out-of-market sports streaming services or TV uh, packages like Red Zone for the NFL, NHL TV, MLB TV, the NBA League Pass is, I think, the name of the NBA service. I think they underpriced it, and if the price was $15, I think the subscriber number would have been only slightly lower and would have captured a lot more revenue. And maybe you make the, the archival library a premium tier where that's even $20 for uh, maybe 12 monthly pay-per-views, not including WrestleMania. WrestleMania remains a $60 exclusive a la carte purchase. That's my fantasy booking alternative scenario. 
And then if it doesn't work out or if there is a, a great opportunity uh, to sell the rights to a streaming service in the end, just as there was in reality to Peacock, then, well, you still have that option as well. But anyway, you can read, there's re- really two articles I'm referencing there. Uh, the final evaluation of the W Network that is on WrestleNomics.com as well as what's the title of the other one? How the W Network's launch affected Raw and SmackDown rights negotiations. And by the way, we did get confirmation. Uh, I, I shared that article on LinkedIn, which contains an audio, the audio clip that I've played on this podcast a few times of uh, Vince McMahon promising uh, Brad Saffalo that he could, the, an analyst, Brad Saffalo, that he could put him in a hammerlock if they didn't at least double TV rights fees. Uh, Brad Saffalo responding on LinkedIn to my post saying that he still has not collected his hammerlock. So an update on that story from back in 2013. And we can talk about Google Web Search also for the months of January and February of this year. I have collected the data and I tweeted it out at Brandon Thurston as well. If you want to see these tables, does Google Web Search matter? I, th- I think it's a good predictor of of uh, consumer activity and I think it's an indicator of mind share. How much are people thinking about a brand? Doesn't necessarily mean they're thinking about it in good ways, but how much are people thinking about a person, place, thing, whatever. Uh, so this goes back all the way to 2004. Anyway, uh, January and February of this year compared to last year, I think is, is a good comparison to make. So uh, WWE uh, Worldwide is down 32% in January, down 14% in February. And uh, again, just the support. Why, why does this matter? Google Web Search started to decline uh, in 2017 from 2016. And consumer metrics have, as I've often repeated. Oh, and, and as you can watch in a YouTube video that uh, I will make public by the time this publishes. Uh, consumer metrics for W have been on the decline since 2016 or 2017. And Google Web Search, you could say, predicted that. Uh, it started to decline just before those metrics started to decline. So anyway, uh, Google Web Search continuing to fall in consecutive years, it looks like, at least in these t- first two months of the year. That's on a worldwide basis. But it's down in the U.S. as well, down in January in the U.S. by 24%, down in February by 7%. But what about AEW? We've got a full year now in the year of 2020 to look back on. For the first time, we're able to make these year-over-year comparisons for AEW. AEW is down also, down by 8% worldwide in January, down 20% in February. In the U.S., it is exactly the same. Down 8% January, down 20% February. Maybe you want to you wanna argue that, well, it, we're still, we were still in the early months of the curiosity and interest in AEW. Maybe even, but we, will, we will follow as the months go on. What about Impact Wrestling? Uh, after we've got a lot of red in, in this table since 2010 for Impact Wrestling, but in December 2020, up 57% in the month that Kenny Omega and AEW got involved with Impact. But in January, it was still down by 10%. I mean, this is worldwide. But then in February, back up, up by 29%. And uh, so, sort of like when I talk about the, the 18 to 49 demo rating, uh, we're getting, we have numbers pretty close to zero that I'm dealing with. I, I, could, I could collect um, a smaller sample of time. I'm collecting all uh, man, 15 or 16 years of history here. I could probably collect a smaller sample to get more precision here. But I think the, uh, the is it positive or negative story uh, is going to remain true. In the U.S., though, things are even better for Impact, where it was up 111% in December 2020, and then up 8% in January, up 44% in February. New Japan Pro Wrestling, uh, in January on a worldwide basis, down 8%, 8%, and in February, an even 0% difference. For February in February, we're st- now we're now we're going to be starting to compare 2021 to uh, dormant pandemic years for or dormant pandemic months for New Japan. So these uh, I would expect these uh, numbers for New Japan for March through July to be quite positive, just because they're being compared to times where there were no shows running at all for New Japan. 
this pandemic is, is really going to burn a hole in a lot of the our ability to do year over year comparisons of various metrics. But uh, that that is what the uh, the supporters at Patreon.com, uh, Patreon.com slash WrestleNomics uh, pay the big bucks for. So I think that's all I have for this week. Again, I have a YouTube video that, that should be public by the time you're hearing this uh, with all of the, the great support that I've gotten from patreon.com slash WrestleNomics, the patrons there. I am investing in Adobe Premiere, which is a, a video editing software, if you don't know. Um, and I've created a, a short video that in under five minutes with visuals and the like, explaining how we can know with, with some confidence that Adobe's popularity and at least its consumer metrics have declined a number of years in a row and uh, before the pandemic and somewhat during it as well. So you can check that out on the WrestleNomics YouTube channel, probably shared across WrestleNomics social media as well. And you can support and become a patron. There's a lot of unlocked posts on there, some including the last week that have been posted. You also get access to a massive Google web, web, web sheet, web sheet, a massive Google sheet, which is a spreadsheet that has over 14,000 points of data is the spreadsheet that I use. It as a living document that has all of the wrestling viewership data that you hear referenced that and well beyond many tabs, analyzing the data followed along with me. You get access to that uh, by becoming a member at patreon.com slash I have lowered, by the way, the background music in this program a little bit hopefully that's enough i know there was some feedback that it was too loud at times actually it was it was so low last week that was just a mistake but hopefully it's low enough now and hopefully it is now optimal you can let me know if you want to hear me talk about actual in-ring wrestling uh, i was a guest with wh park at post wrestling for his really great podcast series about all japan and the nani's the long and winding royal road I talked for, I think, almost two hours with WH Park about the December 6, 1996 Real World Tag League Final, the tag match between Jun Akiyama and Mitsuru Masawa against Akira Tawe and Toshiaki Kawada, one of the all-time great tag matches. Again, that, that is the long and winding Royal Road on post-wrestling. And there are some, some great episodes in there, too, uh, you know, doing biographies for... Mitsuharu Masao and Toshiaki Kawada uh, on an era of wrestling is that is probably my favorite one of all time. But if you like this podcast, tell somebody about it. Make a post on it about social media. Do people still do um, iTunes reviews? You can do that too if you want. But thanks for listening. Thanks for supporting. Again, you can read my written work at WrestleNomics.com. You can follow WrestleNomics at WrestleNomics. You can follow me at Brandon Thurston. I'm Brandon Thurston. I will talk to you next time.